sermon is called Called for His Name, and we're going to be in, in Romans uh, 1. I'm going to read 1 to 7. We'll primarily be considering 5 through 7 and finish this section today. Romans chapter 1. Among other things, we have discovered so far in our uh, getting ready to really get into the the meat of Romans that Paul and the other apostles are really the prophets of the New Testament. They they speak with New Testament revelation. And so he begins here, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord God help us as we meditate on his holy word here this morning and see what God would teach us and convict us on as we study this. We're going to be considering obeying faith or obedient faith in the nations for his name. God's gospel reveals to men saving faith and obedient faith, which really is truly a perplexing combination of things. This subject of a believing trust in the Lord Jesus Christ that is obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ is is just barely mentioned here in this uh, passage, grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith. And yet it's one of the large subjects. It's, it's, a, it's a deep, uh, difficult and challenging doctrine that's, that's raised and taught on in this book of Romans here. Your instinct and my instinct will normally direct us into one of two perilous ditches that are revolving around these two words, faith and obedience. They're legalism and they are antinomianism. The ditches are called legalism and antinomianism. I think legalism may be self-explanatory, although I will tell you that a legalist is careful to follow a code or guidelines or rules whereby your proper observance and your proper keeping of those things will make you and keep you right before God. That's legalism. Okay? It's the code that keeps you right before God. 
the antinomian, I'm going to explain the word. Anti is a Greek word, and, and, and it means uh, opposite of or in opposition to anti. Nomian is from a word that's nomai or namos, and it means law. So this word antinomian means against the law. And in a sense, it's the opposite of being a legalist. Antinomian is against law. The antinomian assumes that their rightness is unaffected by any legal or moral sense. The antinomian rejects that rules, guidelines, laws have any impact on their standing before God. These are two ditches that I think all of us tend to lean into at one time or another. And in particular, many people who are not saved will rely on these philosophies of life. Legalism, that is, they when, when you ask an unbeliever, what is God going to be like on the day you meet him? Why will he be pleased with you? And, and you'll find a pretty common answer to that question is, oh, I'm a pretty good person. They, they have this underlying belief that the right amount of goodness is, is what's going to matter on the day I die and meet my judge. The antinomian tends to be a person with good Christian doctrine. The antinomian tends to know a lot about the gospel. And the antinomian tends to grab a hold of the teaching about grace in the New Testament. And they, they hang so hard and so firmly to grace. They don't know really anything else about the gospel, but they know that grace and the grace of God is going to get them through whatever difficulties there could be in the judgment. However, Paul says that God in his grace... And God has given grace and apostleship so that we, so that believers, those who have come to faith in Christ, might come to a true and right understanding of what the obedience of faith is. And we spent some time considering that this last week. You see, there is a strong connection between faith and the practice of faith. Faith in Christ produces a life that is connected to Christ. And when you separate them, you fall into one of these ditches I was just telling you about. There is such a thing as disobedience of the faith. You realize that? Disobedience to the faith is the opposite of obedience to the faith. We considered some examples of those things last week. We need to, you need to, I need to spend careful time in the book of Romans. You can do it here with us. And it's a, a great way for you to become familiar with this, this, this crucial teaching in the New Testament, studying the book of Romans. You need to carefully study because what we discover and what we learn about, maybe in the deepest presentation of it in the New Testament, is what is saving faith and how do you live saving faith? How does it work? What does it mean? And that's what's explained to us here in this really amazing book. 
that offers salvation to the law and Pharisee type. Salvation is offered to them who the Lord Jesus on multiple occasions points out how these strict rule adherers, very righteous people, lack the righteousness that God requires. And they cannot and should not expect the offer of eternal life at the day of judgment. This gospel also offers salvation to the carefree grace type as well. And we're learning, we're going to learn that faith trusts God in Christ to give righteousness while directing you to be conformed into his holiness by faith. And in the power of his spirit, obeying the Lord. Let me ask you a question. This is an individual question. How have you determined the relationship between saving faith that is the new birth? When, when you're born again, you are recreated and have saving faith in the crucified and risen Christ. How have you determined the relationship between saving faith and the new birth and the life you live? How have you determined the relationship between those two things? If it does not involve your study of and your confident trust in the truths laid out here in this book of Romans, you're making up your own gospel. You're making up your own Christian life. And that's a fact. So let's carefully give some time here as we consider some of these things that are being laid out in this book. Apostleship gets a new word this morning here, messengership. That's what an apostle is. He's a messenger. So the messengership of Christ contributes to one of the greatest gospel ends. That is when Paul says God has given grace and apostleship for obedience of faith. This is one of the great ends of, of understanding and believing the gospel. Faith in Christ, which he will spend a lot of time defining early in the book, among all the nations for his name. Faith in Christ among all the nations for his name. So let's think for just a moment here about the gospel of God for the name, which is kind of the ending of verse 5. Through him... Through him, through Christ, through God, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience. Your Bible might say to the faith, and it should say of faith, to the obedience of faith, because the word is in a, in a grammatical form that, that really does require us to say the obedience of faith. It's called the genitive case. Among all the nations, for his name. So the gospel of God is a Jewish gospel and it is a Gentile gospel. We see this kind of inferred the way he says among all the nations for his name. And this has always been uh, indicated. Genesis 18 is an interesting uh, cross-reference. We'll look at Genesis 18 verses 17 and 18 and then we'll look at Isaiah 5. A couple of references here. The gospel... 
And the offer of life by God has never been strictly and only for the Jews. Look at uh, how this was recorded for us in Genesis 18:17. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? And they're speaking about the, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing, since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. There's a, a very, very early reference to the fact that God's promises and God's offer of covenant hope has always been an international reality. It has not been something exclusively and only for the Jews. The, the passage in Isaiah 5 is even more clear. Isaiah 5.26 says, He will lift up a banner to the nations from afar. It is all the nations of the world shall see this banner being lifted up from afar from the prophet Isaiah and will whistle to them from the end of the earth. Surely they shall come with speed swiftly. There's this international, multinational scope of the gospel that has always been God's intention for the obedience of faith among all the nations for His name. One of the things that we hopefully learn early in our Christian life or maybe if you're not a Christian today you learn it on the very very front end of your hearing of the gospel but this gospel of God that is declared and and this faith that is being um, at least slowly being revealed to us here early in the book is about the name it's about his name it's for really we could say for the glory of of his name. It has an end that I don't believe is intuitively um, understandable. That is, maybe the first time you heard the gospel explained, you might have thought, oh, cool, I get to go to heaven. And and it sounds like it's an all-about-me kind of an offer, and it, and it sounds like a good offer in many cases. You're like, well, I sure don't want to go to hell. I, I really want to go to heaven and so the, the gospel offer seems to be very, very man-centric. But here we see that there is this thing given by God. He says grace and apostleship for obedience of faith among all the nations. What is all that for? For his name. It's for his name. And this is an interesting uh, twist in the gospel. Romans 11.36 is a... It is a summary you may have sung in a song before. It's a very easy verse to remember, but it's very clear in that it, it, it helps you and I understand what is the main thing of everything. It's really not about you. The main thing of everything, Romans 11:36, for of him, or of him, and through him, and to him are what? All things. So is it all about you or is it all about him? Everything is from him and everything is to him. And if you've got a really man-centric world view, 
You're going to be a very unhappy person all your life. Man-centered people, self-centered people are, are, are rarely happy unless they're just horribly cruel and manipulative. And they make people do what they want. They make circumstances be what they want. And when they don't, they're sad and depressed and they cannot recover from their, from their self-pity. But when you realize it's about Him and God is sovereign and God rules the nations and He ordains your circumstances, you get the wonderful privilege of of, of watching circumstances and things changing around you and you learning to give thanks in all things, you serving by faith in the circumstances you find yourself in. He calls men and he saves men from all nations for the demonstrating and the magnifying of his own great glory. That's what God is doing. First John chapter 2 gives us another interesting reference here in this regard. Men and women, boys and girls who come to faith in Christ, discover that the payment they owe, the Bible calls it the wage of sin. When you work, you deserve a wage because the worker deserves his wage. The wage of sin and all who are born in Adam have sin. The wage of sin is death. Okay? That's a, a wage. Now that wage is a judgment. God's judgment must be spent on sinners. But listen to how 1 John 2.12 gives us some sight here. He says, I write to you little children because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. You see that? God's work of taking on human flesh and making atonement for men is a work that he did for his namesake. He makes men righteous. He glorifies men. If we remember Romans chapter 8, foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified for his name. His, his people are made righteous. They're, they're remade in what Adam corrupted. That is, Adam destroyed the greatness and the beauty of what man was created for. Adam, Adam let sin corrupt and, and tarnish the glory that men were created with. And the Christ takes on flesh in order to restore this thing for his name. Think about God's purpose behind and underneath making atonement for the sins of men. It's for his name. For his name sake. Philippians 2.9 gives us another little picture how and why we become worshipers when, when we come to a proper understanding faith in the gospel. Philippians 2.9 is just a tiny slice out of a, a, a glorious larger text here. But Philippians 2.9 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him 
And it's speaking about the incarnate Son. The Son who took on flesh. And the Son who takes the form of a servant. The Son who becomes a man learning obedience. He's speaking about this here in Philippians chapter 2. And therefore, also has God has exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. That, listen, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven. Whoever has a knee in heaven will bow the knee in heaven. And of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The end of these things, the end of the incarnation, the end of the atonement is the glory of God. So that's the end of verse 5. The obedience of faith among all nations for his name among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ is how the passage keeps unfolding here. Among whom you also are the called. And he says in just a moment, to all who are in Rome, among whom you are the called, to all who are in Rome. In a moment, we will consider a little bit more of the details of this congregation in Rome, which I'm uh, very intrigued by, this group of people here. But Rome itself, at this point in time, is the capital of the largest, most powerful, most wealthy. And uh, did they say cosmopolitan when we are referring to a, a multinational reality? Who's, who's living in Rome? The question really is at this point in history, who is not living in Rome? It, it is a massively large kingdom. When this epistle arrives to these Christians here in Rome, he's saying, you guys are among those who are called. Their, their context is here in Rome. It's here in this uh, very, very large city in Rome. These called ones in Rome. This letter to the Romans is written around uh, 56 AD, give or take. You could say 55 to 57, 56. These people have heard and, and they have believed the gospel. They, they glorify the name of Christ by their trust in Christ. They are called the called. Do you see this? It's at the end of verse 6. Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Now, interestingly, Matthew 20.16 or Matthew 22.14 are two of, of other examples of where we would find in the teaching of the Lord Jesus, he, we know, has said many are called and few are chosen. 
So there is an indication when the Lord Jesus is making a reference to those who are called that many people actually hear a gospel proclamation and they are invited to repent of their sin and put their trust in the Lord Jesus. But the Lord Jesus himself makes a distinction. Many are called, few are chosen. In other words, some are called unto belief and salvation and some are called and they ignore it and they walk away from him. And the Lord Jesus calls the difference between those two things. A called and a general call. There's a, a general broadcasting of the call and the chosen. And the Lord Jesus explains the difference between the two by who he has chosen. Many are called and few are chosen. So the Lord Jesus introduces us to that concept in the Gospels. However, in 1 Corinthians 1, 22-24, we see another um, very consistent use of this phrase in all of the epistles. In other words, the Lord Jesus used this word like this and then the apostles themselves in writing the letters to the churches used this phrase much more specifically. So read with me in 1 Corinthians 1, 22-24. Jews request a sign... 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to hear this contrast between the Jews and the Greeks. Jews request a sign. Greeks seek after wisdom. And that's a picture of different worldviews, different, different significance to these people, these nations. Paul goes on to say, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews who are looking for a sign, this is a stumbling block. And to the Greeks, who are seeking after wisdom, they think this is foolishness. That is, in the worldliness of the Jews, who hear the message of the cross, and in the worldliness of the Greeks, who hear the message of the cross, one group labels it foolishness, right? That sounds foolish to us. And what does the other group um, think about it? A stumbling block is what the Jews see this as. In other words, when they see the man hanging on the tree, they know if anyone hung on a tree is cursed. How could a person who's cursed hanging on the tree become a hope of life to them? Their worldviews see Christ. The Greeks and the Jews see Christ and they reject him based on their worldly worldviews. But look how the passage finishes here. The Jews see it one way. The Greeks see it another way. But... To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, we could insert the word is here, the power of God and the wisdom of God. In other words, there is a third way of seeing Christ on the cross. Who sees it differently? What is the name of those who see it differently here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? The called. The called is a synonym for believers. In all the epistles. So when we're reading about the called in, in Rome, it is those who have been chosen to believe. There's a similar passage in uh, Revelation chapter 17. We're not going to read it. But Revelation chapter 17, verse 14, you'll see reference to the called and the chosen and the faithful. And it's the same thing there. It's a very, very clear title given to those who are with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The word called is a reference to those who have been called and believed savingly. So here, these Christians in Rome, verses 5 and 6, these Christians in Rome, they hear listed some unique blessings of salvation. And it's very, very unique, actually. The, the beliefs that other people have in, in this day and age of where we're reading about these Roman Christians, the other religious beliefs they have about what God is like, what, what, what favors or blessings are for those who have believed, when you contrast those ideas with what has been uh, gained and, and given to these who are the called, we see these unique words here. Called is one of them. Beloved is one of them. Saints is another one. Grace and peace is offered to them. Or they've been graced. They've been peaced from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we see being explained or offered to them. So verse 6, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God called saints, the, the words in italics aren't in the original language that are added by the translator, so we can just say called saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These Christians who most of them are hearing this, they're not reading it, it's being read to them. When you, when you hear this, what they're hearing is privilege. What they're hearing is blessing. What they're hearing is favor and and distinction. That is, they are given a special distinction. They are given a special hope. They are explained, they hear that they are citizens of a kingdom of priests. It's what we read about uh, from, from Peter. And it's very interesting because among these people here, these these distinctions are normally associated with your family, if you're a, a member of royalty, or if you're a, a, a child of a slave. That's how you would gauge what your privileges or what your opposite of privileges are. Maybe you would call them your curses. If you're born the child of a slave, you would think that was a, a, a terrible way to be born into the world. But if you were born a son of a king, you'd be really happy because of your privileges and your wealth. Now what's so interesting here, we're reading about these these Christians here, is that we find these people, in many cases, slaves. Or we see women listed here. We see wealthy nobles listed here. The reason I know this is because Romans chapter 16, we're not going to go read much of it. We'll make some reference to some of it. Romans chapter 16 tells us the names of many of the people in this congregation. And uh, we could probably spend a whole morning just speaking about these different persons listed there. But these people would marvel, they would all marvel that because of their calledness, because of the fact that they've been made sons and daughters by faith in Christ, 
they share mutually these privileges that the world only sees in, in a shallow way attached to the most wealthy or the most royal people. And so these people would really and truly marvel at the possibility that, that this would even be offered to them. And this is a way that Christians have learned to worship the Lord ever since. Because in being made sons, in being adopted, in being our, our memory verse in Sunday school um, says that, that those who have been born again are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. The privileges that are yours when you have been born again can't be any greater in your connection to royalty, in your in your privileges in terms of care and safekeeping and trustworthy hope in eternal life. The privileges that become yours at the new birth are unequaled. So the, these people would certainly notice this in, in just hearing this introduction. Even the fact that they're called, they would hear in this way. Now, verse 7, going on to say, All who are in Rome, beloved, called saints, these are, these are the church in Rome. If you'd look at uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 8 to 11, this is probably why there is a church in Rome. Acts chapter 2. As you recall, early in the book of Acts, God gives his spirit to believers. Acts chapter 2, verse 5, says there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, look, are not all these who speak Galileans? There's multiple nations in Jerusalem in this event because of the holiday that they were there celebrating. They were there for Passover and for Pentecost. So Jews literally would travel to Jerusalem when they could to participate in this holiday. So there are people, Jews, from all over the world in Jerusalem at this time. Verse 8 goes on to say, as they're listening to people they know who are from Galilee, which is sort of like saying they're from Laytonville or some redneck town that are not people who know multiple languages. Aren't, they, aren't these people from Galilee is what they're saying? In other words, they don't speak foreign languages. Verse 8, how is it we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya, adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, there you go, Jews and proselytes. Goes on to mention a few more nationalities who were there in Jerusalem for this holiday. Most people believe that the Romans who were there in Jerusalem at the day of Pentecost went back to Rome and they, they took the gospel they heard preached and taught in Jerusalem back with them when they went back to Rome. The history of the Jews 
in Rome is actually pretty interesting. They are probably uh, the oldest community in Rome. The Jews in Rome go back to 161 BC. So there have been Jews living in Rome, even extra-biblical history books say, almost 200 years before Christ. After the Romans invaded Judea in 63 before Christ, they brought prisoners from Jerusalem and Judea back to Rome with them. So more than 60 years before the time of Christ, there were Jewish slaves in Rome who lost in, uh, in war to the Romans, to the Romans. Rome's influence at the time that this letter is written isn't that the Roman church is, is a massive place of, of, of Christian influence. Rome's influence in the world isn't its, its spiritual influence like Jerusalem might be considered. So what is it that drew this mixture of people to the metropolis of Rome? Think about it yourself. If, if you were to move to some place, and there is no equivalent really of Rome in our day now because Rome was such a world power and, and the city itself is the capital of this world power. Uh, the, the world doesn't have a place like this right now. But it, it may be something like going to Washington, D.C. Or, or to New York or to Paris. What draws people to those places? Why do you go there? Glamour, work, opportunity to make money maybe. There's a lot of commerce there. Yeah, to tell your friends, yeah, I, I lived in uh, Paris for a while. I lived in Rome for a few years. There are reasons that would compel people to, to go and live in Rome. And, and you can guess some of those reasons because you and I understand at least some things about human nature. Maybe they were born there. Maybe something terrible had happened and they had to go there to deal with it. But interestingly, what we see is they are now called the called in Rome. Whatever those providential circumstances are that brought them to Rome, we'll consider a couple of them in a moment. They are beloved saints. That means they're separated unto God. It means they're God's people and they're called saints. Providence has brought them together there. The gospel has announced to them the deadly end of staying in your sin and the great hope of putting your trust in Christ. This is the commonality of these people who now find themselves in Rome. They believed in the saving work of Christ. They are now the beloved in Christ. Rome had some very famous rulers. I'll name just a couple of them and a couple of high points that, that impact the history of the Jews in Rome at this time. Of course, you know uh, the name Caesar. Gaius Julius Caesar Augustus um, was ruling in A.D. 14. Okay, so we all know the name of, of Augustus 
Caesar, Tiberius, took his place after that. In A.D. 32 is when the Lord Jesus is crucified. So under the rule of Tiberius there, Caligula is the emperor who rules after Tiberius. And he actually had a statue of himself erected in the temple in Jerusalem. Caligula is one of several very, very vain and prideful men, but having his statue placed in the Jews' temple in Jerusalem is no small historic matter and a a massive impact on on the Jews' worldview of the Romans. In A.D. 44, Judea was claimed as a Roman province. There are not too many equivalents of that in our history today. They they were, in, in a sense, made a colony of the Romans for their agriculture and commerce. In A.D. 49, the Emperor Claudius expelled all Jews from Rome. So they, they just had to leave, which is better than getting killed, which is actually what Nero ended up wanting to do in the end of his reign. In Nero ruled um, from 54 to 50, I'm sorry, 68. From 54 to 68, Nero was ruling in Rome, and he is the one who, after Rome burned, the the rumor is, and this is difficult to prove, but when Rome caught on fire, some people think it was his fault that Rome caught on fire. History isn't clear, but in order to bail himself out, in order to not take the blame, he blamed it on the Jews, and he said the Jews set Rome on fire. And so Nero began to do the the most cruel things you can imagine to torture Christians in those days, including sewing living Christians in animal skins and putting that animal skin in the arena for a wild animal to do what it wanted to do to the Christian, or using Christian bodies on what's called a pike to provide light in his garden. Nero was uh, fantastically cruel and, and wicked man. And so that event happened shortly after this, this letter being written to the Roman Christians in Rome. So we, we know a little bit about... Uh, a, a tiny bit about the Jewish experience with with Rome's influence politically and militarily over them. But they are living there. And in verse 6, when he says, among whom you also, the called, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called saints. This group of people living there are There's many Jews. We know the Jewish names. We can see them listed there in uh, Romans chapter 16. We can recognize Jewish names. Um, We can also see there are many slaves 
mentioned there in Romans chapter 16. When you see the phrase household of Aristobulus, for example, in Romans chapter 16, doesn't mean he's the son or the daughter of Aristobulus. It means he's a servant of Aristobulus. So if, if, if someone is listed there, household of, it means he's a slave in that particular family. Narcissus is another one mentioned that way, household of Narcissus. There may have been as many as one in three persons in the work of slave in Rome when this letter was written to Rome. One third of the population of Rome is probably slaves when this was written to them. There's a woman named Persis in chapter 12, I'm sorry, verse 12 of Romans 16, who her, her name means uh, a Persian woman. And she's an aged person. Her, she's referred to as someone who has labored among them, as in she's not laboring anymore. They, they presume that she's passed her years of laboring and she had labored among them. So they're called saints in verse 7. This diverse group of slaves, wealthy people, men and women. Verse, verse 7, To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called saints, Not called to be sanctified. Your Bible might actually say that. Your Bible might say called to be. It literally just says called saints. Sanctified means set apart from and set apart to. In other words, you, if, if, you're, if you've been sanctified to God, that means you've been taken out of the world and placed in his service. Sanctified to him. Set apart to God. So these people are sanctified from and they're sanctified to. They're laborers in the Lord. Some of the ways their names are given subtitles in Romans chapter 16, they're called beloved, laborers in the Lord, brethren, approved in Christ, fellow prisoners with Paul. There's a great mixture of... Uh, I'm sure it would have been great to, to just be in that congregation for uh, at least a few days' time. Back in verse 5, you were told that they had received grace and apostleship for obedience of faith among all the nations for his name. Now, among other things, I believe you should see a purpose statement for the church here. Grace and apostleship for obedience of faith among the nations for his name. It's a great summary of what the Christian life is for. God gave. It's God's grace. It is God's apostleship. God gave. God is the primary actor so that his purposes are done. What do apostles do? Apostles teach. Apostles reveal the will of God so that you can know the will of God, so that you can do the will of God. Apostleship is so that you could know who he is, so that you could know his will, so that his purposes are done among the nations for his name. So we see from verse 5, 
to the time we get to the end of verse 7, if we back up a few steps, which is what is happening when we get there, when we see the scope of this congregation who is there in Rome, we see workers, men and women, rich and slave. And, and here's where you and I find this commonality. A Christian who's been called is from a broad, diverse group of people, retired people, young people, slaves, wealthy people. Your calling is in Christ. If you've heard the gospel and if you've repented of your sin and if you've become the possession of God for the glory of his name, your calling is revealed to you by the apostles in his church. Your work, your, your purpose in this world is you've been called for his name. He separated you unto himself, under his honors, under his blessings, under his care for his name. Why has he shown himself to you? Why has he revealed his will to you? Has his call separated you from the world and unto himself? Called saints. It's one of the phrases there. Called saints. Called holy ones. Called the separated ones. Is that what you are? If you're a Christian, is that what you are? Is that is that how you see your life? I'm, I'm called. For his purposes, for his name. Is that is that how we see ourselves? You believed Christ, he calls beloved. He says grace to you. He says peace to you. From God, who is the father of the sons and the daughters united to Christ by faith. You know, eventually we see in Romans chapter 12, he says, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's a post-gospel verse. That's a sanctification verse. Let me say it more simply. Christians are to live a Christian life. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? So you can know his will, is what it says in Romans chapter 12. Why does a Christian need to know his will? So you can do it. If you don't know as well, you, you won't do it. But the revelation that has been given to men by the prophets and the apostles is so you can know his will. Doing his will doesn't save you. Do you realize that? This is one of the tricky and difficult things that we learn in the book of Romans. Doing Christian stuff doesn't make you a Christian. Doing Christian stuff doesn't make you righteous. You realize the beginning of this book, which we will get to in a couple, two or three weeks from now, Romans 1.17, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, why is Paul so astonished by that? Because he had been making his own righteousness all of his life as a Pharisee, as a very, very, very good man. And he was on his way to hell. 
I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Well, why is that important? If you don't discover what has been revealed in terms of the righteousness of God, you will meet Him wearing your own righteousness. And you know what it is? You know what your own righteousness is? Filthy rags. No merit. There's no hope in your righteousness. Do you get that? Do you get the glory that we see here for a Christian who has been called out of whatever it is he was doing there in Rome to see the perfection of the God, man, Jesus Christ, the value of the atonement, the value of his blood shed for sinners. Do you get the glory of what it means to be called and separated to this one? Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Don't work off of the old one. We need to renew it with faith and trust in the righteousness of Christ. Let's pray. Oh, great God, we, we love you and praise you for the gospel. Lord, we thank you for the revelation that has been made even to this amazing, fascinating group of people here in Rome. Oh God, we, we pray that our own hearts would, would be soft to the revelation of the righteousness that has been made available to us by Christ. Lord, we love you and we, we pray for your help as we desire to glorify your name. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's stand. We'll sing the doxology together, okay?